Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Welcome, everyone. As always, uh, delighted to have you join us for this edition of our Insight Series podcast. Today, we're going to be uh, looking predominantly at the United States, given some of the uh, rather interesting events over the past week or so. We'll begin kind of on the domestic side, speaking with James Barth, our analyst for North America. Uh, We will then pivot to the international focus and perspective, specifically looking at Russia and China with our lead analysts on the, uh, the Europe and APAC desks, uh, Liana Semchuk and Hugo Yu, to uh, discuss those issues with us. However, you know, uh, starting off with background and, and then beginning with uh, the domestic focus, you know, the, the word unprecedented uh, has been, been used quite a bit uh, over the past nine months to describe you know, events surrounding COVID. Uh, however, we can probably even more aptly use that term to describe the events of January 6th around the U.S. Capitol here in Washington, D.C., and, and, and arm insurrection um, occupying the U.S. Capitol building. Certainly uh, not something that was uh, in my bingo card in, in terms of speculative events likely to happen in the run-up to the inauguration. Uh, so not only do we have a, a deep need and interest in, in examining, you know, sort of potential policy implications of the transition to a Biden administration. But now we have some rather unexpected, uh, an, an unexpected level of security challenges as well. So, with that, James, um, let's let's begin talking about near-term outlook for you know unrest and potential violence. There, there's been you know, much made about subsequent or a kind of follow-on activity, you know, by individuals and groups, you know, inspired or ideologically aligned with those who uh, committed the, the capital insurrection. Uh, what are you looking at um, in, uh, in about the next week or so leading up to the inauguration and, and, and shortly beyond it? Yeah, sure. Well, with regards to short-term changes, there are changes to both the the threat landscape and also changes to developments within a right-wing community as a result of both the events on the 6th of January and those that followed it. Regarding the first in terms of threats, prior to the 6th, we'd seen widespread calls for large demonstrations both on the 17th and on the 20th of January, Inauguration Day. And since then, kind of as a response to the massive security changes that the government has made throughout the US, as well as the nearly 100 arrests that the the government has made in light of the events on the 6th. Many chat rooms uh, and many right-wing groups are actually calling for their members to stand down. Um, There are some even saying that calls to continue to protest is actually done by FBI agents and that this is an FBI trap uh, to arrest further members of the right-wing community. Having said that, there are plenty of individuals who are then responding to those posts and saying that essentially that's giving up the battle. And I think what we're witnessing here in terms of a a change in threat is a reduction in in the threat of unrest, but an increase in the threat 
uh, say from attacks uh, from further extremist individuals. So I think these large scale 100, 200 plus uh, events are less likely over the coming week as a result, but the small scale extremist groups, extremist plots, the threat of an IED attack or a lone shooter attack has actually increased. And I think one thing to note is the precedent for what right-wing groups to target security personnel. Um, and they may see this increased security presence actually as a target rather than a deterrence. In terms of developments within the right-wing community, there's been quite a few since uh, the 6th of January. Firstly, big tech has always been a target of right-wing groups, but now even more so than ever. The amount of threats and the frequency of threats is really unprecedented towards uh, big tech companies. Secondly, vast amounts of people are then joining alternative communication platforms. Parler was one, yes, and it's gone down. There are rumors that it may go up again. Gab has received huge numbers, but also Telegram and Signal. Um, Telegram channels that I track have seen significant increases since the 6th of January, both in terms of members and the number of posts. Um, what does this matter? Well, we're seeing a widening of the appeal from these communities. Thirdly, this widening has resulted in a shift in the content that's being shared on these platforms. Prior to the 6th, some of these platforms were by and large relatively moderate um, in terms of the, the type of content they had posted and sometimes they disassociated themselves from other right-wing channels. Since the 6th, we're seeing a big mix. For example, Boogaloo content being shared pretty widely on Proud Boy channels, whereas previously the two had, had tried to disassociate themselves from one another. Part of this dynamic is the events on the 6th are being portrayed as the first shot um, with the death of Ashley Babbitt from the security personnel within the US Capitol. This is the first shot of the Civil War. This is what everybody has been waiting for within these right-wing groups. Um, so there is definitely a portrayal of Ashley Babbitt as a martyr um, and as a rallying call. Um, and then finally, there is a new belief, I think within the right-wing community about what is possible and what is desirable. Uh, the picture is widely shared, uh, both in mainstream and non-mainstream channels about showing electors and congressmen cowering or taking shelter, sorry, in Congress uh, because of the right-wing group on the 6th of January has been widely shared as a positive. Look what's possible. Let's make them fear again. Comments like that um, accompanying these pictures. And I think that definitely has to uh, be taken into consideration uh, from the security community as we move forward and, and think what is possible from these groups. Thank you, James. And I think one of the other uh, topics that has arisen is some potential accusation or, or at minimum speculation around uh, a degree of complicity to, uh, from some of the uh, members of Congress themselves. What are, are some of your speculative thoughts uh, on, on kind of initial reaction and, and thoughts around those issues? Right. So I think you're referring here to the story that a number of U.S. congressmen allegedly took uh, far-right extremist groups and individuals on tours around the US Capitol on the 5th January, which could have been used by these groups is to allow them inside knowledge as to how to get through and around the Capitol. I hasten to add that these are unconfirmed reports, but I do see them as part of a broader issue here in terms of collaboration within members of the US government with these right-wing groups. The, the Secret Service is looking into reports of one of its colleagues who is sympathetic to those who stormed the Capitol. There are also uh, video recordings of US Capitol Police who either waved in 
and directed um, uh, some of those who took part on the 6th into the capital. I should add, obviously, that this is not all US Capitol Police. Some were incredibly brave and heroic, and there is one individual who was almost solely responsible for preventing the mob from entering the Senate floor. There is certainly an institutional issue here, and I think that that's going to play a part in uh, any review as the Biden administration comes in as to what domestic terrorism policy and law is and how to tackle domestic uh, extremism. So really, I see the, the U.S. congressman uh, allegations as part of this broader trend. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, there's, there's a parallel in the, in the corporate sector as well, where uh, a number of, of friends and, and peers have been talking about and, and, and finding at least some preliminary information um, around insider threats Specifically, uh, I think you know those in in the uh, intelligence, you know, in the corporate intelligence community, in the technology, social media, and and pharmaceutical industries have been the ones most concerned, you know, and and in fact that there 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 is information to to suggest already, you know, some some uh, radicalized right wing individuals seeking to uh, exploit connections at, at those companies uh, for some type of, of, of insider threats and attacks. You know, beyond that awareness of uh, concern and potentially some, some instances of, of, of actualized threat, uh, this is certainly something that I, I, I expect alongside that will continue to be an, an issue, you know, in, in, the, in the short to medium term. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And there has been a lot of talk uh, since the 6th of January that this was quote unquote, intelligence failure. And there are so many aspects to intelligence and what this was uh, and what this was not was a failure of intelligence collection. There was widespread reports um, and understanding that threats were being made on the 6th of January. What this was instead was a failure of intelligence analysis and intelligence coordination. And I think part of that comes down to uh, exactly as you said, those responsible for the collection of the intelligence either not uh, either having their unconscious bias dictate how they assess that intelligence or have their bias dictate how they disseminate and share that information. So I think that that's definitely worth considering here as well. Uh, you know, you know all, all these issues are, are, are definitely going to come out in, in the after action reports and, and investigations, um, you know, probably uh, painfully slowly uh, as, as all of us are, are eager to learn more about that. Um, let's, however, pivot, pivot over to the political side. I, I think, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we would have anticipated being solely focused on more policy-driven uh, issues uh, around this time of transition. So let, let's, let's spend some time examining that as well. As we are shortly going to be, you know, uh, you know seeing Biden administration step forward, uh, what are you looking at and what are you looking for uh, out of that transition? So regarding the events on the 6th of January and how that plays into Biden's policy, uh, uh, policy changes, I think there are really two key aspects. One is tech company regulation and the other is domestic terrorism law. And so regarding the first, I think the majority of conversations surrounding tech regulation is going to revolve around Section 230. Biden has stated his desire to revoke it, but I think reform is more likely than revocation. Part of this is just because nobody's quite sure what would replace it if it was removed. And um, 
the amount of time that would be required to come up with a viable alternative means that this is not something that, that would happen, at least in the short term. Having said that, I think tech companies and government, in response to the developments after the six, with a number of tech companies removing or banning or uh, changing the fundraising opportunities for a number of different accounts, they are finally in agreement that something has to be done to change the guidelines and regulations surrounding content moderation. Um, and they may differ on whether or not tech companies should be held accountable for the enforcement of these guidelines, but I think they are now moving closer together in, in understanding that there has to be uh, some guidelines set out by the government that, um, that provides clear instruction on content that should or should not be allowed on these platforms. Um, there are rumors that some within the Biden administration are looking to developments that have happened in Europe as an example, whether he does take Europe as a, as a good example in EU legislation is unclear. Regarding domestic terrorism legislation, there is certainly uh, an issue with terrorism law right now. Two interesting examples that I think are, are worth elaborating on. If I gave financial support to the base or Asimov, and there's no, no way that I can be convicted for having done that in the same way that I can be convicted for having given funding to Al-Qaeda. Um, instead, funding uh, links between funding and domestic terrorist organizations um, can only be worthy of conviction if that funding is proved for a very specific offense rather than the group itself. Um, or to take the Tree of Life synagogue shooter example, Robert Bowers killed 18 at the Tree of Life synagogue, but he wasn't considered a domestic terrorist because he used a handgun and not a weapon of mass destruction. Added to that are the discussions that we just had about the uh, possible alleged collaboration between a number of law enforcement agents and the, the groups who stormed the Capitol on the 6th of January, there has to be a change. However, this change should not be rushed through, and I don't think it will be rushed through, because on the other side of that, we have to take into consideration worries that an expanded or a Patriot Act 2.0 would take away civil liberties. And I think with all the social justice movements that happened in 2020, all too many people are aware of, of the way that law and legislation can be used to suppress uh, social justice movements. So my focus for changes that would happen to domestic policy regarding terrorism would be more on the lighter end. One, providing a framework for understanding what differentiates terrorist organizations from the vast number of people who share the same ideas and maybe in the same broad groups, but not capable or willing of carrying out these attacks. And two, using the legislation that is already there to shift how uh, law enforcement and civilians respond and interact with uh, extremism. To take just one example, the Nashville bomber uh, on Christmas day, uh, I don't, I've forgotten now whether it's his girlfriend or, or an ex or his wife had informed the police that she thought he was making a bomb they showed up to his door and knocked, he wasn't there and they moved on. Something like that is, is uh, within the realms of current legislation to be addressed, but it has not done so, so far. Well, certainly, exactly. And uh, a further complication to that being that any action towards considering some of this, the, the uh, legislative and policy changes will be delayed by what will be the Senate trial for the second impeachment of Donald Trump, which will uh, as it certainly appears, uh, command the Senate's time alongside confirmation of, of, of cabinet members and other government uh, appointees by President Biden um, upon his inauguration. 
let me wrap up with you, James. Uh, you know, let's um, let's call this a lightning round. Uh, you know, for for some quick hit points, I, I'd like you to just kind of quickly focus on you know what you see as some of the the biggest threats to business operations uh, during this uh, you know immediate and then short to medium term. Sure. So. Uh... Threats to business operations, uh, first and foremost, physical threats. I see buildings as the most likely target from extremist groups. Across the US, 6th of January showed that uh, really the, the potential for extremists to, to act is all over the US. I think IEDs, loan shooters are probably the most pertinent threat to those buildings. Large demonstrations are possible, but I think the uh, protests on the 11th of January outside Twitter headquarters by a handful of pro-Trump supporters shows that this is far less likely uh, than than the former. Gotcha. And I, I know another thing we've talked about, you know, would be the sort of you know uh, uh, revenge concept of, uh, of of targeting data centers, uh, you know, on, in in parallel with you know other types of deplatforming activities around uh, some some of the right wing uh, websites and applications. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think one of my biggest concerns going into twenty twenty one will be that right-wing groups in a way learn from uh, eco-terrorists and, and far-left activists, uh, far-left terrorists, and use their modus operandi to target supply chains, target supply lines, and disrupt operations um, by targeting buildings that perhaps wield um, servers or something like that. That, for me, is, is the one of the biggest worries going to 2021. Before Parler was taken down, a number of screenshots showed uh, people calling for a bombing or uh, to, to set fire to buildings that house the servers for a number of tech companies. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's, really a, 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 that's really a method that's been used by eco-terrorists for a long time now. We saw that definitely at the end of 2020 with a number of, uh, a series of eco-terrorist attacks. Uh, and I do see that as, as a definite danger and inspiration for the far-right community too. And then maybe as a final point, you know, uh, you know, we've we've talked with some some other uh, of our sublime colleagues and uh, I think the analytical point of, when the unthinkable has already happened, it expands the realm of what is possible. You know, so I, I think my final thought then is that um, the greatest risk is probably the one that we haven't mentioned or haven't talked about because it has escaped our imagination, but that uh, limitations of imagination are going to be significantly expanded um, after we have seen the, un the unexpected. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think uh, the goalposts have been shifted uh, but at the same time, uh, in response to that, I would also say that the biggest threats are perhaps the ones that we've forgotten to talk about. Uh, and so as we shift our attention to tech companies, we shouldn't forget attention and the, the vast attention that was give, given to COVID-19 throughout 2020. That will remain a threat and that will definitely uh, should not be put on the back burner. Sure. Thank you, James, so much. Uh, as always, a fantastic conversation. Enjoyed it very much uh, and hope our, uh, our clients and friends have as well. Thank you so much, Greg. I hope to speak to you soon. And now pivoting away from uh, U.S. domestic perspective and focus, uh, we will move over to the international landscape um, with a particular eye on Russia and China uh, and how some of these issues will have been viewed um, and what are some of the other uh, bilateral uh, relations and tension issues uh, with, with, with both countries. Um, we will start with Russia and Liana. 
Thanks, Greg. So I think in, at least in the short term, uh, overall relations between US and Russia in light of Biden's victory will definitely be a bit more strained. It's uh, very likely that Washington will be more consistently critical of Russia, um, especially compared to the previous administration. And this will almost certainly generate some, some tensions in, in the year ahead. For example, Biden has previously spoken about supporting Ukraine's integration into NATO and closer partnership with the European Union, which is something that generally has not been well received in Russia. So it's possible that these tensions will remain heightened or even possibly increase if Biden administration increases its support for countries such as Ukraine or indeed other countries uh, that Russia traditionally views to be under its uh, sphere of influence. Um, but more specifically about the violent events um, in Washington earlier, namely the storming of the Capitol and, and the violence, all of that really played into Russia's hands. And the media was very quick to capitalize on this and try to essentially discredit not just America, but the general idea of, of democracy. So, for example, some of the things that I immediately noticed in the media that were highlighted was the emphasis on the fact that uh, American electoral system is flawed. Uh, Russian media said that it's outdated and also prone to various violations and irregularities. And this was done to essentially point out that U.S. therefore has no right to criticize Russia's electoral system, which has consistently been pointed to as being prone to fraud and uh, various other electoral uh, issues. Um, secondly, there was also a lot of emphasis on the fact that the events in Washington essentially also meant that U.S. has no longer any right to promote and push democracy in other parts of the world. And some news outlets in Russia also pointed to what they perceived and projected to be hypocrisy by highlighting that many lawmakers and political commentators in the states initially supported revolutions in places such as Ukraine and in Belarus, where people stormed government buildings and tried to overturn fraudulent electoral results. But the same individuals are now condemning similar or what Russia perceived to be similar events in the United States. So, again, um, this was kind of tried to be molded and perceived and portrayed as hypocritical on behalf of the United States. And lastly, I guess, broadly, all of these events and the narrative around them, again, has been very, very convenient. And uh, of course, Russia is gearing up for their own elections in September this year. And given that previous elections were reported to have had mass instances of violations, Russia could use the events in Washington to potentially discredit any criticism from the U.S. in the lead up to or after their own elections, where the ruling United, United Russia Party is largely expected to win. Thank you. And one of the kind of consequences and, and dynamics of, of the fallout, you know, here in the U.S. kind of, you know, post the, uh, you know, the violent incidents around the insurrection last week has been in, in the tech sphere, you know, where we saw Twitter, Facebook, uh, and, and, and others have now banned Donald Trump's accounts, uh, as well as put restrictions on his use of the, the official POTUS account on Twitter. Uh, YouTube taking that step this week as, as well in, in terms of a, a temporary shutdown of, of Trump's account there. You know, and, and then the, the further actions taken against some of the right-wing aligned platforms like Parler. You know, how much has been said in Russian media uh, about some of these uh, social media platform uh, actions or, or, or sanctions? 
Yes, so this has been another interesting aspect, and uh, specifically with regards to Twitter, this has been something that uh, has also been widely highlighted in the media and perceived as a very kind of convenient opportunity for Russia at this particular time uh, because of Russia's own contentious relationship with social media platforms and various restrictions that they have placed on political opposition, on activists and other individuals in society. So. Ironically, um, both actually the critics of the regime and supporters have largely perceived the ban as censorship and kind of furthermore used this example to reinforce uh, their own arguments about America and democracy being hypocritical. So a lot of the, a lot of the um, bans on um, Russia's opposition have uh, now essentially been used by the government to kind of reinforce that this is done on the grounds of national security reasons. And even some of the Kremlin critics, such as Alexei Navalny, also highlighted that this is dangerous precedent because it gives tech giants powers to discriminate against who can and cannot use platforms. Again, this is really convenient for, for the Kremlin right now because Russia has recently expanded its foreign agents law, which now includes uh, individuals um, if they participate in political activities in Russia and receive foreign assistance. Uh, previously, the law only applied to NGOs that received foreign funding. Um, but now individuals as well as organizations need to register themselves as foreign agents or risk being fined or, or potentially jailed as well. And so all of these tightening of restrictions, curbing uh, political opposition, other activists is, is now kind of justified on the grounds that in US there's a similar precedent. And I do think that, especially in the lead up to the state Duma elections in September, um, this can only intensify and, and Russia can essentially use that as a justification for further silencing dissent. I think then the, the next obvious question then, you know, in terms of corporate interests and business risk, are there any immediate implications then we can see in the operating environment in Russia for U.S. businesses in particular, giving what I, I what you're what you're calling for, and I think we I think we, we definitely can expect in terms of a, a cooling in relations between the two countries. Uh, indeed. So as I've alluded to already, I think businesses, spe specifically in the technology sector uh, in Russia, I think are likely to be particularly at a heightened risk of being targeted either um, in a form of fines, various legal challenges, or potentially even sporadic searches of, of offices or even detention of staff, potentially given the current political climate. I think indications of these types of risks um, have already been evident several times over the course of the last year. Um, for example, Google and Facebook have already both been fined um, a few times, um, and Russia reiterated recently its intent to start blocking websites that essentially censor or discriminate against Russian media content. Um, additionally, in late December, the state's uh, media regulator in Russia announced that the country needs an alternative to YouTube uh, which furthermore underlines Moscow's uh, determination to essentially curtail the presence of Western social media outlets in the country. And another thing to kind of highlight and to potentially watch out for are um, developments around the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, that I mentioned earlier. So Russia launched criminal case against him, um, and he is planning to return to Russia actually on the weekend of 17th of January, after being treated in Germany after he was poisoned with Novichok nerve agent in August. 
Navalny has a, an extensive social media following and has successfully used platforms such as YouTube to expose um, various high profile corruption cases in government. So to that end, I think major tech platforms um, could also be at a higher risk of fines and other disruptions to operations um, if they stream his videos or kind of or are perceived to promote his agenda, especially as the Kremlin is actively seeking to prevent unrest ahead of the election in September that are said to be uh, very tightly managed. Cool. And you mentioned the possibility of uh, detention of of business staff or, or employees. Can, can I ask you to talk a little bit more about that? Are, you, are, we, are we seeing something kind of in line with tensions that have transpired between the U.S. and, and China in, in, that, in that regard? Or, or is there unique uh, aspects around that that you, that you see for Russia? With regards to Russia, I think uh, what I'm referring to is potentially this being done under the uh, previous foreign agents law that I mentioned, which now is includes people. Uh, so I think especially individuals that are perceived to participate in any political activities or be critical of the regime, I think are at risk. There haven't been any specific cases of this having happened yet with regards to this particular law, but it's definitely um, a possibility. Thank you so much. Hugo, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, continuing the conversation to talk about uh, some of the international uh, implications of uh, U.S. Uh, administration change and policies, and actually prior to uh, the administration here coming up with the uh, with the Biden inauguration, we've seen a, a rather uh, significant uh, policy change come out of Secretary of State Pompeo with the move to lift the decades-old uh, self-imposed restrictions on, on government. Uh, contacts with Taiwan. Uh, you know, so while obviously that's not explicitly U.S.-China relations, we 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 know that that clearly is is the uh, the significant impact here. Uh, can I ask you to to speak a little bit about uh, that issue and and how that uh, looks set to play out? Certainly, Greg. Hi. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, the long-established internal uh, restrictions or protocols regarding on how U.S. governments interact with uh, Taiwan. So it's been guiding uh, the unofficial ties between Washington and Taiwan ever since the normalization of uh, U.S.-China diplomatic relations in the late 1970s. So um, we are talking about, you know, where and how diplomats can, can meet with a representative from Taiwan and how this kind of meeting may be conducted. For example, uh, with the restrictions in place, the US government officials were not supposed to uh, receive or beat uh, Taiwanese officials in uh, government establishments and in the sort of meetings usually carrying out in a, in a hotel or, or, or a neutral venue, just to give you an example here. So certainly, you know, as you can imagine, the uh, decision to remove this landhold uh, contact guidelines has certainly sort of angered Beijing and Beijing already strongly condemned, uh, condemned this action um, uh, and, and um, you know, uh, single, single out uh, Mike Pompeo in its uh, criticism. But in line with what has happened in the past few weeks and this being one of many other measures against China and Chinese companies that is intended to uh, really set in 
tough on China legacy for the outgoing U.S. administration under Trump, but also uh, try to box in, uh, restrict the new incoming uh, administration under Joe Biden's the remunerability uh, rem- uh, on, on, on its uh, China policy. Um, so in response, Beijing will likely to act with restraint and try trying to ride out the storm in the last few days in what is tried to see as the final flourish of anti-China actions by the uh, Trump administration. And with regard with Taiwan, Taiwan has always been a, a cornerstone of, um, uh, on, which the, um, on which China conduct its foreign policy. So the one China principle, there, there's definitely no doubt of any comp- uh, compromises being made by Beijing on, on such principle. And, and the removal of <clears throat> these measures, one could potentially interpret it as the, the U.S. signal, at least for the part of the outgoing Trump administration on the record, for uh, a move towards a more sort of elevated unofficial relationship with, uh, with Taipei. Um, but at the same time, um, we, we believe Beijing would like to, to see, wait, wait and see what the Biden admission would do uh, with the um, removal of raw or restrictions. So rather than taking seriously with the outgoing uh, Secretary of State Pompeo's words and actions, um, the uh, Beijing will be more interesting to look into what Biden might do uh, with regard with uh, on Taiwan. So let's take a likely plausible scenario um, that's certainly been in my mind where I personally, you know, don't anticipate a Biden administration nor a U.S. Congress to take strong moves to radically change the policy or diplomatic stance towards China. You know, meaning that there there will be no significant warming of relations, kind of you know, countering the direction that the Trump administration has taken. So, you know, let's assume for a moment um, a Biden administration proceeding in in kind of mostly the same uh, vector with regards to China uh, Chinese relations um, as the Trump administration does does that then start to cast a bit of a, a direct challenge to uh, Beijing's one China principle or, or what other uh, type of impact do you think that might have in terms of Beijing's uh, response kind of in, in a more of a, a medium term uh, throughout 2021? Yeah, certainly. Um, I'll answer in two parts. So um, the uh, narrow focus on the one China principle, uh, i.e. with the question uh, regarding the question of Taiwan, uh, I think uh, the Biden administration has already uh, um, um, signaled that it will abide uh, by uh, basically what sort of protocols and practice has always done by, by Washington over the past few decades in its uh, unofficial engagement uh, with Taiwan. So that means, in my view, the, uh, the so-called strategic ambiguity would, uh, would continue. On the one hand, U.S. would provide, you know, uh, arms sales and wouldn't 
uh, and, and we, we don't expect uh, Biden certainly to reverse all those arms sales orders uh, that has been signed off by the Trump administration uh, to Taiwan and to protect the status quo across the uh, Taiwan Strait. On the other hand, we certainly don't expect uh, um, uh, the Biden administration to openly challenge the, the one China uh, principle um, and, and to, uh, to risk a, a total breakdown uh, of um, the uh, diplomatic uh, relationship with Beijing. Um, so that's on the, um, on, on the Taiwan issue. Um, look more broadly, um, certainly agree with your um, assessment of the expectations uh, of the Biden administration. Joe Biden uh, is not gonna suddenly reach out uh, olive, uh, olive leaves uh, to Beijing, i.e. Uh, the, the, the ultra-strained bilateral relations is not gonna suddenly warm up. Uh, but at the same time, what we expect to see is that um, the Biden administration will continue the uh, carry out the, 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 the existing sanctions, i.e. Uh, continue the hardline policy uh, towards Beijing, but perhaps not adding a flood of new sanctions. And, 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 and in the grander context, the, the, the bilateral relation would uh, return towards a more a status of um, predictable status for you know, policymakers and indeed for businesses and investors going forward. You know, so it, it sounds like by your assessment that we can potentially count on um, return to a little bit more stability uh, and decreased uncertainty uh, with regards to business risk for, for U.S. and other Western firms in China uh, over the next, you know, kind of, you know, year or two uh, as, as, we, as we get into, uh, you know, what we may see uh, further from the Biden administration? Yes, most probably. Um, I think the key phrase is, is um, more predictability, um, you know, reduce of uncertainty, but not necessarily a reduce of tension. Perfect. I, I, I know that, uh, that that often can be a, a, a very critical aspect for for companies as, as they as they uh, measure up prospects for their business engagement, probably, you know, for, for 2021 and certainty being one of the uh, uh, the worst enemies to 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 manage the risk they're willing to take on. That, that's right. That's right. So for, you know, business planning perspective, you know, business would welcome to see, um, you know, even though the, 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 the relation we, we see gonna remain strained and the strategic rivalry between the world's two largest economy gonna continue, if not even further intensified um, in, the, in the coming years. But under Biden, uh, business will be hoping for uh, you know, a, a, a development that is more akin to what we see uh, in, in terms of a, a more um, conventional way of conducting diplomacy and foreign policies um, uh, between the two rivals or, or uh, between Washington and its um, alliances. Brilliant. Um, is, is there any other, uh, you know, final question uh, or, or, or or thoughts that you that you'd be interested in 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 addressing? I think it's interesting to hear Liana's comments on how Russia sees um, the events um, took place last week on um, the storming of um, um, the Capitol building in Washington. I think 
um, from China's perspective, I will add, you know, a very similar sort of storylines being told here. So um, hypocrisy, um, uh, you know, how um, the, 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 the Western media has been, um, uh, on Western governments being quickly condemning, condemning those um, uh, people, protesters, uh, you know, uh, rioting in the Capitol building or occupying the, uh, the, con the Congress. Um, uh, and compare side to side is how the same people and organization said about the, uh, about the Hong Kong activists when, when they entered the Hong Kong leg uh, legislative building. So that's one angle that the Chinese media and Chinese government been, you know, really sort of uh, uh, keen uh, in highlighting uh, the level of uh, hypocrisy. And also, again, um, as with the uh, Russian perspective, um, they were keen to highlight, you know, the, the events sort of undermine or really sort of discrediting the, the, the democracy, especially U.S. democracy, uh, and discrediting U.S., um, you know, as, uh, as the leader of the free world, and, and contrasting with, trying to contrasting with the advantage of, um, you know, China's own um, seemingly unified political system, and bringing uh, you know, also trying to bring into, into the narrative of how, you know, the governments uh, successfully suppressed the, the, the COVID uh, pandemic uh, and compared to, you know, what's still going on uh, and, and the governments um, across the world are still struggling with their, their own outbreaks. I really appreciate your thoughts uh, as always. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. And as always, uh, to wrap up the conversation today, we are joined by Ed Johnson, the head of our Insight team. Ed, you, you always uh, share your wisdom with us in, in terms of uh, events to uh, watch for in, in the week ahead. What do you have in store for us this time? Hi, Greg, and, uh, and hi there, everybody. Well, of course, as has no doubt been discussed in, in great detail um, over the course of this podcast, it's uh, Inauguration Day next week, and I'm sure James has set out many of those uh, issues that we're expecting around that. So just taking a step back away from the US situation at the moment, elsewhere, you know, moving to, to Africa, um, you, the elections in Uganda have, have gained a lot of uh, attention in the recent weeks, particularly with, with protests ahead of the polls on, on the 14th. Um, however, we're expecting unrest and, and clashes between opposition forces and, and police uh, to continue uh, over the weekend and certainly into next week as well. Uh, the military's been deployed as an internet blackout in the, with the aim of, of disrupting uh, opposition groups organizing. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a standoff there, um, and we would expect that unrest to, to continue. Uh, switching fire to unrest elsewhere, uh, in Latin America, there's uh, you, uh, ongoing anti-government protests in Guatemala continue to threaten violence or escalating towards violence, with the opposition uh, planning uh, protests for the, the 18th and the 20th of January. Uh, in Guatemala, Guatemala City, uh, we anticipate that uh, high levels of unrest will, will persist into uh, well into next week as well, um, with with police implementing roadblocks and uh, you know deploying um, forces to the to the streets, increasing the likelihood of of clashes with fringe activists there. Uh, elsewhere in Germany, the leadership race to replace Angela Merkel um, as the next Chancellor of Germany uh, when when Merkel steps down in September. We'll reach this conclusion next week. There are three uh, three main candidates uh, currently 
vying for the uh, the position of the leadership of the CDU, uh, Germany's ruling party, one of the ruling parties in the coalition, with the favourite Friedrich Merz narrowly ahead of his uh, two other uh, opponents, uh, Armin Laschet and uh, Norbert Röttgen. Uh, you know, this is obviously a very crucial uh, appointment given the, the centrality of Germany uh, to the European project and uh, to uh, sort of you know, leadership on, on the continent as well. And of course, the, the challenge is maintaining a unified policy direction despite internal uh, divisions within Germany, um, as well as within Europe, of course, more, broad, more broadly, uh, really increased the um, sort of focus on those three candidates with Mayors, the front runner, would represent quite a substantial break from the uh, Merkel era policies of um, of compromise and pragmatism, adopting a more um, sort of hardline conservative uh, approach, and that pretty much it for for our roundup this week. I think that's certainly plenty. You know, on on top of the the world being focused on uh, the U.S., I'll say unfortunately that's uh, that's certainly plenty uh pl- plenty of other things to keep an eye on as well. Uh, Ed, thank you as always to our. Uh, friends and colleagues listening, thank you. I uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, if there are any uh, questions or other thoughts or issues on your mind, please, uh, as always, do not hesitate to reach out. We look forward to uh, continuing the conversation with you individually. Um, and beyond that, uh, we'll enjoy sharing another podcast with you next week. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful week.